0: Welcome to City Talks, a monthly podcast looking at the big issues facing UK cities and the latest thinking in urban policy. I'm your host, Andrew Carter, from the Think Tank Centre for Cities. I hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to this edition of City Talks. My guest today is Tony Travers. As everyone will know, Tony is a professor at the London School of Economics, but he's also local government guru, knows everything about local government finance, uh, thankfully, And today we're talking a few days after the budget, so on the 21st of November, Uh, and I I guess we're going to use this as an opportunity, Tony, to to reflect on where we are now with local government, if there's anything in the budget that we should be uh, keeping an eye on. But I think there's a broader set of questions about just where local government is now and what we can see for it, not only in the short term, maybe through the rest of this parliament, but I guess the parliament beyond as well, because it's not clear as to whether... The conservatives or labor have a defined view on how they think about local government which has been true for a good number of years. So you, you give us your sense as to where we are now and we had the budget last, we'll come on to the specifics if there's anything in it now but if we're trying to summarize a very big picture uh, question about where local government is, local authorities across the country, how would
1: we sort of set the set the scene? Well, I think the budget didn't radically change anything for local government in the short term. There's clearly a little bit of extra money for social care, but nothing, though, to deal with inflation. So that's plus one, minus one, as it were. But other than that, local government got and cities got precious few, indeed levelling up, got precious few mentions in the budget. So I think it was a sort of budget that was much aimed by the government, understandably, given the mess they'd made uh, not so long before, at trying to re-establish their credibility with the financial markets, and as a stable government. And I think that was overwhelmingly what they were trying to do, and the details of all the other things inside government and policy, of which, you know, cities, local government levelling up, are amongst them, I think were very much below the radar. Mm. They may come back, they will come back to that, obviously, but for the time being, I think the budget was all about stability reassurance, showing that the adults are back in charge.
0: And where we saw some announcements on um, public spending, for example, unsurprisingly and very very, uh, predictably, it was on NHS budgets getting a significant increase and plus education to a degree, having money pumped into it. But again, beyond that, you know, some of the commitments in the short term, but certainly in the medium term, were less defined and less clear.
1: Yes, there was extra money for the National Health Service. I mean, how, quite how long uh, governments of all parties and mixtures can go on providing the NHS with more money as a solution to the NHS's problems is, you know, must, you know subject for another Uh, discussion. Uh, But it does matter to local government because there's a fixed total, a declining fixed total of overall public expenditure. And we know from the period from 2010 to 2015 and onwards that governments find it impossible not to ring fence the NHS. They now find it hard not to ring fence the benefits system. And once you've ring fence both of them and source of not quite ring-fenced education and then uh, ring-fenced defence at two percent of GDP you know everything else then that has to take the strain as before uh, includes local government we'll come on to talk about that no doubt I mean I think that over time a dis- debate's going to have to be had in Britain about whether you can have a state where welfare, broadly defined, grows and grows and grows and everything else, relatively and perhaps in future, absolutely shrinks. Um, there are, there are trade offs which national politicians find incredibly difficult to make yeah. or even to argue about. And so uh, you see why benefits have gone up, the state pension's gone up, NHS has been given more funding, some more money was found for education, a bit more actually for social adult social care, which local government will go. But if you stand back from it all, it's part of a long-term decade by decade shift in Britain towards having a larger government actually now, but which is substantially and over time ever more welfare and welfare including welfare services. And less and less of it is about transport, the economy, local government, justice, the Home Office, and so on. Now we haven't quite got to the point where the reckoning comes for that, but reckoning there surely will be. Yeah, and that's part of the debate and discussion.
0: I think it was interesting. It was a piece by Paul Johnson in the, uh, in the paper, I think, over the over the weekend, saying he was fairly confident in predicting that the size of the of the of government relative to the economy uh, is not going to go back to historic levels and can only ever. In, in many respects go up, not because of policy, active policy decisions by government, but just simply because of demographics and aging and such. So it's an interesting kind of conversation about both the size of the state in, on the one hand, but also then how that the size is is cut up between different cakes. And I think that's part of the problem in a sense that we've seen pressures in NHS or we've seen pressures on uh, uh, defence. But actually, we're also trying to control or at least contain the overall size of the state, which is relatively still uh under the average in terms of OECD and certainly uh, averaging compared to some other European countries as well.
1: Uh there's no doubt that the state has grown. I mean, partly because of COVID support, it actually breached 50% of GDP in 2020, 2021, unsurprisingly. But One of the intriguing graphs that the Office for Budget Responsibility publishes periodically and has done again uh, alongside the autumn statement last week is a hundred year chart showing what happens to government receipts and government spending uh, since 1900. Mm. And you see that during the First World War, public spending rockets upwards much more than government income and then falls back, but it doesn't fall back all the way to where it started from. So it falls about halfway back, then exactly the same happens, but more so in the Second World War, goes up another great big step and then comes back only part way. Now, COVID and associated recent events has undoubtedly created a similar spike, not as big as those two, obviously, but big. And again, it looks as if the trend line for spending will come back only part way towards where it was before COVID. So yes, I think the state has taken a step upwards in terms of its size. And surprise, surprise, if we don't want borrowing and national debt to go up, that means uh, government receipts will have to go up permanently. Now, you know, for a conservative government, which many of whose members and many of whose most vociferous members believe in a smaller state and a sort of lean competitive country, you can see why this causes them in particular, so much angst, mm. uh, you know, in some ways the Labour Party can, you know look at this and say well this is the world we always wanted whereas conservatives used to a lower tax pro small state worldview. not everybody most of them i think will find this very irksome and it's hardly surprising because a change of gear has happened in under their watch
0: yeah yeah no, i think that's a very good point it'd be interesting to see how as we move through over the next 18 months how those ideological positions of the two mainstream parties evolve and change and how they eventually um, get expressed as we move into election period Um, let's come back to to local government and you know we find ourselves in 2022 essentially local government having an incredibly tough decade before austerity was very difficult particularly for local government which bore the brunt of some quite large reductions compared to other parts of the of the the public sector we've already discussed so just give us a sense as to where you think local government is now and we hear more and more in the press about councils expressing concern about their ability to balance the books i think it was last week it was kent and hampshire they've already joined places like slough and croydon that have gone through section 114s so just you know where is local government do you think now in terms of its financial standing and financial strength
1: well as ever, if it weren't for organisations such as the Centre for Cities and, I'm going to praise the National Audit Office now, uh, you know we'd be hard pushed to know where we were. But luckily, the National Audit Office, all of whose reports have to be checked with the government department and agreed that the data are right, you know, have shown within the last year or so that local government revenue spending, on average, is now about a fifth, 20% lower in real terms than it was in 2010. OK, so 20 percent lower in real terms. The NHS, by contrast, spending is about 20 percent higher in real terms. So this is an extraordinary divergence. So that means that local government is having to provide for a growing population. But this is, you know, spending in real terms, not spending in real terms per head. So the falls bigger in in, in per capita terms. Yeah. and uh it's done that amazingly well indeed in some ways cities and local government more generally are their own worst enemy because their finance officers are so good at managing spending down they rarely hit the need for a section 114 notice a section 114 notice technical term for when the finance officer chief finance officer usually of a council works out in year mid year that the council won't be able to balance the books, which they're required to by law. They've got to balance day-to-day spending by law within the the annual budget. So that's why we've had section 114 notices issued in a number of places in recent years. Now, I think the leaders of um, Kent and Hampshire, not I realise cities as such, but we're all part of the local government family, Mm -hmm. um, very interesting intervention by them because their counties are generally well run, they're conservative controlled, and the strength of feeling in their letter about the financial position that they think their counties and local government more generally finds itself in was extraordinary. I thought it really was. And because nobody could say to them, oh, well, you're just playing politics. They're conservative leaders of well-run counties in the South of England. Mm. So I think that's what that tells us is you can't go on cutting local government spending forever without there being visible consequences. Remembering that local government spending overall has fallen by 20% in real terms since 2010. Within that, social care has been protected and social care is typically 50% of all spending. And that means that everything else has had to fall by, do the maths as they say, 40%. So street cleaning, street lighting, refuse collection, all the other services, parks and leisure have been cut far more. Now, why does that matter? Well, you know, Michael Gove's white paper on levelling up included a big section about people feeling proud of Mm -hmm. the places that they live in. And most people like to feel proud. They are proud of where they live in. And when they see that the services that, that keep the area looking nice and town centres looking good and it's particularly important for I think uh, centres in cities You know, but not only the city centre but smaller centres or town centres in city regions you know they feel this isn't what it used to be like years ago and indeed it won't be like it used to be recent, years ago because there's less money to keep the place clean and tidy and the graffiti removed and all the other things that make the environment look nice and that is a consequence of 12, 13 years of government policy. I know we're going to come on to the future, but all I can say is briefly of the future, uh, doesn't look bright. Um, the, the future trend figures we have, which we don't have, actually, we don't have anything for next year, even for total local government spending. But, you know, if you look at everything else we know, it can't be good for the unprotected services.
0: No, exactly. Uh, and one of the things that the, the Autumn Statement continued and in some ways offered a little bit more flexibility on, uh, was uh, encouraging or expecting that every local authority would increase council tax. And the autumn Statement said, whereas we capped you before at 2% or 3%, we're now going to cap you at 5%. And the assumption is that everywhere will have to do that or will choose to do that. Your thoughts on, on that? Because we we also know that, the ability to raise revenue through council tax is not related to need at all. In fact, in many respects, the relationship is the exact opposite. In a sense, the ability to raise and the need to raise are inversely related
1: to each other rather than positively related to each other. So your thoughts on, on that? Well, I mean, the first thing to notice, I mean, not everything you say is true. But let's just deconstruct it fractionally. I mean, the first thing to say is that the increase in council tax is filling... Um, effectively a bucket, which has had a hole drilled in it, where government grant is pouring out the other end. So over time, let's not say there isn't a bit more money in grant for social care, to refer to the government in recent years, but if you look at the general grant funding for councils, it's fallen precipitously. So What is effectively happening over time here is that general taxation funded by income tax and other more progressive taxes is being saved and more of the burden being pushed on council tax, which particularly for people who get no help with lower incomes, some people on low incomes get a lot of support and sometimes 100%. But for those who are struggling but not protected by any form of uh, council tax subsidy, uh, it's highly regressive, so it's shifting the burden of taxation away from the national exchequer over time and onto local government. The point you make about how much that raises is absolutely profoundly important. So, if you're in Nosley or Barnsley, you know five percent on the council tax will raise very substantially less than if you're in Richmond upon Thames, and that then, of course, has led the government in recent years to try to. Uh, sort of tilt other funding they give, uh, particularly to do with social care, to compensate for that. And so that is really complicated because you're now sort of doing something to equalize that isn't the existing grant equalization scheme. So will councils get the blame for this? I mean, there's a huge round of local elections uh next May. And I know a number of uh council conservatives have voiced the uh conservative mm. MPs have voiced. The thought that this will mean uh, councils, and there are a lot of Conservative councils up for election next May, will get blamed for this. I think it is absolutely incumbent upon ministers and indeed all members of parliament not to blame local authorities for the council tax increase. This is not a stealth increase. You know, what the government itself is doing, particularly with not uh, uprating uh, thresholds for different bands of income tax is allowing so-called fiscal drag to pull more and more people into higher tax bands a so-called stealth tax Mm. well the great thing about council tax one of its best features in many ways though councillors won't think this is that everybody knows what they pay because a bill drops through the letterbox every year it's a good tax in that sense but councils I think will find it hard not to put up tax by five percent because if they don't social care but other services which you know were originally funded on the assumption inflation was going to be substantially lower than it is now will find themselves squeezed not only by the fact that there wasn't much money in the first place but by the fact that inflation is also squeezing spending downwards yes
0: yeah i wonder whether i guess a related sort of area or question is you know what we've also seen not in the in the very short term but we have seen it grow over time this sort of proliferation of special interest pots of money that government has invented and then to in various ways allocated out to places across the country across a whole range of um, uh, services or you know uh, uh, things that they want to see happen it, do you see that as being part of it, it's, I guess in some respects it's, a, it's part of an unwillingness to reform the way that government gets, Funding in a in a in a fundamental way, and the way they deal with that is a sort of pr- proliferation of pots. Is that the way we should think about those sorts of things?
1: Well, I mean, the number of pots is clearly out of control. Okay. No one knows. Is that, well, there's there over a hundred. There know, are over a hundred. We know there's over a hundred. I've been reliably informed by ex civil servant
0: that she they were tasked with doing this task and when they got to 250, they
1: stopped. Right, okay, well, it's over, well that's over 100, no, it's not very <laughs> accurate. Anyway, so, the, and there were two reasons for, the, for these pots, really. Um, you can see services have been squeezed for 12 years, and understandably, sponsoring departments in Whitehall thought, hmm, this isn't very good, our service has been squeezed, so they'll get a bit of extra cash, hand it to local authorities, but the last thing, if you're you know, a department that's interested in transport, let us say, is so you want the money frittered away on libraries, or if you're the culture department, you don't want your money for libraries frittered away on transport. So you put a ring fence around it. So it's this money is now in a pot, and better still, make councils bid for it. So you're absolutely sure what they do with the money. So now you've got it, but both people bid for it and you've got it ring fenced, which means it has to be audited. So it's quite a lot of effort. And then you've got loads and loads of them and councils have to bid for them. Then of course levelling up comes along as a sort of further generator of new pots of cash uh, and of course leaving the EU meant the UK Shared Prosperity Fund became important in this regard yeah. as well. Now some of these are more automatic than others but if you look in the overall there's a very large number of grants which in many cases councils have to bid for. On top of this there's a really interesting much under-discussed a set of grants in the last few years for hardship, and where councils are given chunks of cash, which they just hand out to individuals to pay for rents, food, and other things, sort of. It's a sort of micro welfare state that's being built up at the local level. I notice in the uh, autumn statement, the government's committed to paying more money out that way. So you've got really three different kinds, at least, of grants. You've got the sort of um, Whitehall departments wanting to try to protect their services, Little grants potholes famously Mm -hmm. then you've got the leveling up ones and then you've got these new sort of hardship ones where ministers have worked out that the welfare state is going to leave some people in really difficult situations so the council officers are literally handing out cash to people to try to pay for food and heat and light and so on now apart from the audit implications of all of this and the fact that it's very hard to track uh, where all the money is going to There's a separate issue which your question wisely points to, which is if you were a local authority receiving some or all of these little grants, does it in any way make good the cuts to your overall funding in the last uh, 12 years? And I think the answer is overwhelmingly not. No. You might be lucky if you got some big grants through the Towns Fund and the UK Shared Prosperity Fund and so on. They might just about balance, but the, the difficulty there is quite a lot of the little pots are for capital. Mm-hmm. So they're about new high streets, new surfaces, better environment, uh, filling in potholes, buying library books. I realize that's not those two, but you know, it's that kind of thing. Mm. Whereas it's revenue, day-to-day spending that's tanked. So uh, what council is getting are lots of one-off grants, often for, you know, rebuilding canal sides and town centers, nothing wrong with any of this, but, it's not day-to-day spending no. on the kind of services that you see when you walk outside your front door. No. And I think that if I'm honest, I think the government itself doesn't really understand any of this anymore. It's just too complicated for anybody to understand. So that
0: leaves us in an interest because you and I, amongst many others, have been uh, advocates for you know, local government reform in you know, in various ways. and as part of that, uh reform process, we would need to think about both how local government gets the money that it currently uses, but also uh if we increase the ways that local government itself can make some choices about additional monies that it may or may or may not wish to to raise from its local tax base, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I mean, where does that leave us in terms of that sort of reform agenda or reform wish? have we made any progress over the last period or are we you know is the current situation budgets going down tight kind of fiscal uh, conditions does that make any reform uh, however big or small less likely or more likely over the next two three or maybe five
1: years the challenge i think that successive governments of any party would face is that they don't explain in detail to us what the trade-offs are. I think that is a complicated liberal democracy sort of problem Hmm. there. We just park that. But from local government's point of view, that means that this weather system is well and truly set. And that is that the government just can't stop protecting the protected services. Now, what does this mean for local government funding? Well, obviously, government could they didn't remove council tax capping altogether i know they just simply increased the cap and that will make it possible by the way for councils quite um cheerily to argue this is the government who did this it's not us and i think many of them will say that the government because if they got rid of the cap altogether, we'd have seen some council tax increases i'm guessing of 10 or 12 or more percent Mm -hmm. and then it would have been easier for the government to argue this was The council's fault because look here's a council that only did it by four percent and these people have done it by 12. Mm. but in the end council tax unreformed regressive it could be less regressive if it were reformed but you know it's not going to be reformed business rates sort of partly localized but not in a way that anybody can understand and then all these pots of cash i mean local government funding system is a freestanding mess and needs radical reform Now, there's a sort of second order question implied by the one you ask, which is what could be done in the short to medium term to alleviate local government's position? And I increasingly think, and this will be more true for cities than perhaps for rural areas, which itself is a complication, we're going to have to look back to the past. We're going to have to look to the origins of city government in the 19th century when councils did far more charging for services. I think we're going to have to move back to more charges for services, perhaps levies. I mean, personally, I think it's worth exploring. I levies on, um, I think Michael Gove opened this, this particular Pandora's box with his levy on construction companies or certain construction companies to help pay for cladding. So whether um, utilities, for example, and others who have rights to access streets should in future perhaps be levied for the purpose and we we need to think about ways in which local authorities can charge more of the organizations they come into contact with or individuals in a way that's still fair for citizens I think we may have to start looking to that again because I don't see council tax and business rates and still less in the short term you know a local income tax you know rushing to the rescue so I think we are going to have to look at other ways for councils tourism tax You know, I think things like this, which have been off the agenda. And again, the trouble with that is some places do very well out of it. Others wouldn't do very well out of it. That means it probably have to be metropolitan wide rather than city centre. If you're going to do it, perhaps more congestion charging cities, you know, need to think about the powers they've got there, because if they don't use them, eventually the government will. Mm. So I think we're going to have to be a bit more kind of plural and wide ranging in looking for ways to raise money to stop town and city centres looking stressed, which many of them, I fear, do.
0: And what's your sense? I I, I completely agree with that. What's your sense as to where local authorities are? I mean, individually, it's very, you know, they'll be in all different sorts of places, but collectively on these sorts of issues. I, 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 I found it interesting that we still only have one local authority in the country, has introduced a workplace parking levy, which is Nottingham, Nottingham yeah. which has been very, very successful yeah. on a whole number of different fronts, and and yet nowhere else has done it. Leicester got close to it, but now look, they look, they paused it or uh, stopped it for the foreseeable. If you look at low emission zones, again, London's fully charging all vehicles, etc. Other places, by and large, where they have introduced them and there aren't that many, are typically, you know, motor vehicles, private cars are exempt, etc., which is really, A, the the majority of the problem, but also if you're looking to raise revenue, that's where you get it from. So I'm I'm always struck by, and it would be interesting, your thought on whether local authorities, local government is really in that space where they're prepared to do this, or, or is there always some other option that they're hanging on for, or they that they want to happen instead?
1: I think local government as a whole, I think it's always been um, less, perhaps slightly less bold in coming forward to argue for radical changes to the local government funding system, in part because, oh, this is so bad to have to say this, there's a sort of plausible deniability in the current system, in the sense that you know it's, well, the government, it's all the government's fault. Um, because at some level it is all the government's fault, to be fair. Mm. So it's all the government's fault. Whereas if, if local authorities are raising much or all of the money to fund local services locally, it would be far less easy to escape behind blaming the Secretary of State. Now, I think added to that, because of the need to regenerate and rebuild, particularly cities, many of them have been wary about using any of the extra powers they've got for example, you know, the extra levies, levies to um, fund transport or the, um, the, uh, so the business rate supplement and using the off-street parking levy, which Nottingham used, or the congestion charge, which London introduced. Hmm. Because I think they all think that this will somehow make them uncompetitive compared with their neighbours or near rivals. Now... All I'd say about that is, look at the rise of business improvement districts. Business improvement districts are a most interesting, uh, now not so new, innovation. uh, Because they have the right, where they exist and they have a vote, to collect business rates locally. Mm. And they then start getting involved in cleaning streets and putting up Christmas lights. There's lots of Christmas lights up there put up by bids at this time of year. And this is all to the good, actually, because I think bids... What the bids have, a bit like parish councils in rural areas, is access to a bit of money that the council never could access. Mm. And so it's new money. So bids have access to new money to spend locally on streets and the environment and making the place look nice. And that shows you at the margin how that tiny difference between the council's declining budget and the bids new budget helps them have a visible presence in the streets, do things you can see, and help to try to turn around the local environment issue and again what i think what i'd read from that is that only re- relatively small amounts of extra revenue to local authorities particularly to cities particularly the uh, more stressed town town centers and local neighborhoods could make a big difference i mean if you you know the amount of money that's spent on local neighborhood service is is minuscule mm. compared with the vast sums that are spent on other public services um, and uh, many of whose services are actually where the productivity is quite low. So I think that local authorities probably need, going back to where I began, to argue slightly more cogently and more directly for access to new income sources or indeed to be willing to use the ones they've got more, because until and unless they do that, it's always going to be possible for ministers to say, we've got these powers, you just don't use them. Mm. Actually, I think with congestion charge, if local authorities continue not to use those policies, eventually a government will come along and introduce a national charge, yes. and the local government will lose all the revenue. So, do you think, in part, there, you know, in terms of arguing for for
0: the use of them, part of that argument is to say, which actually, uh, Nottingham did do, is uh, part of the rationale, and they continue to do it. And the rationale for the workplace parking levy is the money's raised will be spent on improving public transport, for example. You know, if you think back, what you know completely, part of uh, Ken Livingston's pitch for the congestion charge would be that this will allow us to raise revenue, which will be spent on buses, by and large, but it also it makes the bus service far easier to do because there's less traffic on the road and therefore they become more reliable, etc. So there's a degree of, not hypothecation in a sort of, in a very... Um, uh, specific sense, but there is a connection between revenue raised and the, what that revenue is spent on. Do you
1: see that as part of the, the way that you think local government is going to evolve? I think absolutely. I think the um, this is why Section 106 and the community infrastructure levy similarly need, where there is development in an area or where there's a new revenue stream like the um, Nottingham one, you know, the fact that people can see where the money is going to makes it makes it much easier over time to justify the change in the first place, uh, because otherwise they will think, well, we're just paying an extra tax and the money just disappears. So I think it isn't quite hypothecation, as you rightly say, but it's it, it's allowing at the very least people need to see what they get for the money. And I think that it's a bigger challenge. Public spending in Britain is now well over a trillion pounds, you know, a billion, it was a thousand billion pounds, not a billion billion yet, but it will be a thousand billion pounds. And most people will be able to see only a fraction Mm. of that, unless they're using the National Health Service directly, or unless they're using some other service or in the armed forces, they won't see anywhere that money goes. They'll see only a tiny fraction of it. So I do think from the state's point of view, given, you know, trust in particularly national politicians is so low, the more people can see that they get something for their higher taxes, especially as we go into an era of substantially higher taxes. That's a lesson I think national politicians need to think about. Yeah,
0: right. Yeah, that's good. Um, Another area to get your thoughts on, again, we've heard this quite a a lot in in various ways, so I'd be interested to get your thoughts on where a, whether you think it's a good proposal and then I, I guess the, the likelihood of it in some ways being introduced. You know, we've heard a lot about local government, local authorities having to essentially set balanced budgets on an annual basis, you know, by law, not allowed really to run obvious uh, deficits, they kind of do, but, but they're not supposed to. So there's a, you know an argument about allowing local authorities to say to take a three or a five year view with balanced budgets over that kind of Period that comes and goes, and you know you've long looked at this kind of stuff. Your, your thoughts on that, as a, both in principle, but then
1: you know the likelihood of practice. Where do you think we are on that? Well, it's an in, it's, a, it's a an opportune question, given that the chancellor himself the other day effectively came up with a five year rolling control over his own behaviour, which means that by definition it never actually quite controls it, which is very clever if you think about mm. it. So I think the the. Local government, the requirement for councils to balance their budgets within year, very Victorian in many ways, but it's both, it's, a, it's, it's both a very good thing and quite a bad one. Let's see, let's unravel that. So it's good in the sense that local authorities, unlike national government, I might add, are under huge pressure to ensure that. If they spend X in a year, they get Y in, and if they don't get, sorry, so if they spend X, they get X in, I should say. So they spend a hundred, they have in, they have to get a hundred in in income. Hmm. Now, it is true that where councils have had particularly problems that are not of their making, national government has effectively created a, a dispensation to allow them to smooth by temporary borrowing the position they found themselves in uh, over. Um, two or three or four years over a period it's effectively allowing what you're you're describing but the good thing about councils having balanced budgets is they never default on payments they always pay their debts you know no local authority in Britain has ever defaulted on a payment a debt payment so or indeed other payments so they are very very trustworthy by global standards and that discipline in part comes from the balanced budget requirement and the prudential. Uh, requirements on, mm. on borrowing. So these are all sort of sensible things. But a, but a downside of the balanced budget, which is almost invisible to the public eye, is this, and I hinted at it earlier on. Local authority treasurers are just brilliant at balancing the books. So whatever number they're given, they'll find a way of balancing the books. So they'll bring spending down to meet revenue. And what that means from the Treasury's point of view, it's easier to push local government spending down than in almost any other part of the public sector. And uh, and of course you can see evidence of this, that in most years when local government spending is under stress, what happens at the end of the year? Their reserves go up. So they are cautious in their management because they think the future is going to be worse, which is a pretty good bet actually. So, um, We've seen local government spending with the, and there are, and clearly as we move ahead, there's a greater risk of more and more authorities having to issue Section 114 notices, I suspect we'll come on to. But hitherto, if you look at the financial position of local government over the last 12 years, it's a miracle so few authorities have got into trouble. Uh, given this enormous pressure, and of course, it, the reason they don't is that treasurers, directors of finance, are incredibly small C conservative, mm. and they they know how to balance the books with any number you give them, and they push it down. They tell councillors, if you don't get this right, skies will fall in. Lo and behold, they balance the books, mm. and some, yeah. most years they have some money left in the bank. So, given that, given that financial
0: discipline, would you be open to that sort of that in reality, or? It, more explicit recognition that thinking over the three year, over the five
1: year would be a more productive way well, of of moving forward. It, it it would have to be very, very carefully constructed. You'd have to get uh, sit for uh, working with the other accountancy bodies, I think, to come up with. Uh, something that meant it wasn't an open ended commitment to have a rolling budget, mm. where you, uh, which is not unlike what I think national government's just yeah. done. Um, it has to have enough bite in it. But I take your point, And it's a good one worth exploring further. There's a sort of rolling budget might encourage greater confidence in local government. And that might make it easier for them to spend a little bit more at the margin and not to fear they, keep, you know, they need to build up reserves all the time. So I think it's worth looking into, but it would have still to be have a put a sharp element of discipline about it, I think. Yeah. Uh, Otherwise, you would end up with councils getting into trouble more frequently.
0: Yeah. You hinted just uh, a couple of minutes ago about uh, future of funding and then uh, Section 114. I mean, feel free to predict or not, but we've had some. Are we likely to get more and should we worry about that? And if so, what does that mean?
1: there's a three-year settlement from the, which in the spending review published about a year ago but local governments only get a, got a one-year settlement so it got to one everything else gets a three-year local governments a one-year settlement i'm told by the way that you know some people are predicting this year's local government finance settlement will be on the 21st of december so even if it's not that late you know okay, the nearer it gets to four o'clock on the 24th of december the more interesting in many ways so so <laughs> Uh, Local government will, but the settlements that were set for that three years have now been substantially eroded by inflation. Mm. Uh, Councils can't avoid, and there's a bigger issue here for another debate, really, about can't avoid pushing up pay, particularly for lower pay workers, or they will all quite reasonably go off and work in hospitality and supermarkets. Who can put their pay up? So there's a big crunch coming, particularly, I think, for more urban authorities, but it won't be unique to them. Um, as pay in the private sector goes up much faster than in the public sector. So that means the local government settlements in cash are worth less than they were. Mm. And that would be for this coming year, 23, 24, and the year after that, 24, 25. Um, and of course, the if you look forward in what the chancellor said in the autumn statement, then the unprotected services are going to get cut in real terms beyond this three-year period so no let up in the financial position thereafter
0: is there a deal to be done let's let's assume that the government was open to this deal but again is there a deal to be explored at least where local government local authorities say we understand that uh cuts are on the way uh we are you know we will make good on those cuts as best as we possibly can but the, on the flip side the deal is we want much more flexibility and autonomy over the money you know even if it's a smaller amount we get more flexibility and autonomy over it and essentially that's the deal that is struck you know it's not like you know 70 reduction in funding is obviously not sustainable in any sense but it could be 10 but we do 20 if we had more flexibility and autonomy is that
1: the kind of is that a potential deal that you think some might strike I mean, in fairness to Eric Pickles, when he became uh, Secretary of State in 2010, uh, that was exactly what he did. He unringfenced fenced lots of grants. And I mean, it's true, local government spending was quite, cut quite sharply, but part of the deal was, you know, you'll get cuts, but you'll get fewer ring-fences mm-hmm. for all the ring-fenced grants. But as we were discussing and exploring earlier, there's a sort of terrible dynamic with ring-fenced grants, uh, which is that you know, the more pressure local governments under, the more Whitehall departments won't ring friends grants so that the money only buys tarmac that's put into potholes and isn't spent on books or something in the library. So there's, there's that real challenge that Whitehall, as in so many cases, is just fighting itself. And it does this all over the place. Um, but yes, more freedoms for councils uh, would without doubt, make it easier for them to push these pots and use them efficiently, but at this cost to national government. I mean, the single best example of an odd ring-fenced grant is the public health grant. So public health was transferred back to local government after some years away, but it now gets a ring-fenced grant, so the government wants to make sure the money's spent on, social, on, on public health, but it's a grant which in most years shrinks. So it's both ring-fenced and shrinking. So, you know, quite what the logic to that is, I do not know. And as I say, the, you know, as so often with discussions of this kind, as far as local government has a single consolidated budget. And at the top, it has officers, chief executives, panel senior officers, finance director, who, more than national government, have to look across the public sector. Of course, they've got. A housing or they'll have housing experts and transport experts and social care experts and you know electoral experts and everything all the, all the other things that go on inside particularly city government but they're not quite as bad as whitehall They're saying, well this budget's ours and it can only be spent on what we want it to and whitehall departments in some ways like mini governments once they've got their money they protect it as if it were own, theirs and only mm. theirs and then of course, it gets down to local government in those narrow channels. And so local government has less freedom. So, I mean, to the second time, to answer your question, I think the fewer ring fences there are between all of these grants, the better. But let see, another challenge for that, levelling up. Mm. You know, would Michael Gove's department be willing to unring fence levelling up funding when it's supposed to be doing things directly linked to levelling up? Discuss. Yes, not quite. And there was a line or two in
0: the Autumn statement about exploring the possibility and feasibility of doing settlements with some of the mayors that looked across different departments and looked at the spending in totality coming into their area, or at least chunks of it, and whether they could get to those kinds of similar types of spending arrangements with the mayors, as as I guess government does with other departments. I don't know whether that gives us a hint. I mean, there's lots of caveats in the in the word in itself, consider and, you know, give mind to, et cetera, et cetera.
1: And, and of course, as ever, it slightly um, depends on how much control the centre of government, that's number 10 and number 11 Downing Street, have over the rest of government. That's all these departments mm. who see the money as theirs. And, it, you know, one of the things I've learned over the years is it's, it was intriguing to learn how difficult it is for the core of government to get other departments to do things yes. if those departments think they know better it's much more difficult than, than at first sight appears when it comes to combined authorities and their mayors I and mean, what's I mean there's a, again another whole subject here I mean most of the money apart from the money where there are combined authorities that have transport police and fire where they have their own budgets are all inherited from a previous system a previous system, But for most of the new sort of regeneration, levelling up type funding that these combined authorities and their mayors get, it's almost impossible to work out where the money comes from or exactly how much it is at the local level. I mean, as far as I can see, the government doesn't publish consolidated budgets for combined authorities. Whilst they must have their own annual accounts, um, knowing what money's going into them, how it's used, uh, is actually quite difficult. So whether the business department, the transport department, the education department, the culture department, whether they be willing to you know, put money into combined authorities and then say, oh, well, unring fence it, even though it's our money. So, you know, lots of um, brouhaha in the media recently about um, the culture department, or sorry, the arts council to be precise. It's, you know, redistributing uh, grants from uh, cultural institutions mostly they're not entirely in London to other parts of the country so would that money be unring fence so it doesn't have to go into libraries and arts so it can be used for I don't know streets I doubt it yeah. so again as I say you're and the, as, the difficulty is that central government finds it very hard to control quite a lot of what central government does forget what local government does yes um Let's um, let's close by
0: just your reflections on, I suppose, the future, big question, uh, big area, unknown, but I suppose, and unfairly, you know, do you envisage many of the things that we've been talking about for quite some time, and in part because they are long run issues, but also we can see the long run trajectory of some of the things that we've been discussing. So do you see in the future, is it? You know a scenario for local government muddling on, muddling through, you know, things get either gradually worse or gradually better, but it's incremental? Or do you see sort of radical change with a with a, a moment where something significant could happen or potentially does happen or will will need to happen? How how do you how do you think about that, the future
1: for local
0: government, on the issues that we've been we've been discussing?
1: I mean, there are one or two interesting bumps in the road coming along. Which I'll come back to answer the question in detail. One or two interesting things to keep eyes out for, I think, in the coming weeks and months. There's a revaluation of the business rate going to happen, which I'm sure the centre of the cities will be doing lots of work hmm. on. And that will lead to quite a substantial redistribution of the burden. Retail will pay less. Industrial, particularly, sort of sheds and fields will pay a lot more offices probably not much more or less this will have a profound regional effect Uh, and i think that that uh, will tell us something about the way the economy has been changing Uh, but it will have a a real life economic effect because some businesses are going to find particularly shops are going to find their rent uh, business rates falling Mm. quite a lot Mm. might help high streets we'll see um so that's one thing i'm also interested to look at some of the output from the census that's coming along which is going to tell us quite a lot about who's moving where mm. and what the, what the migrant population of different parts of the country is very interesting stuff on the overseas born uh, population mm. in the UK now showing a much a big jumps in overseas born foreign nationals living in many parts of the UK compared with 10 years ago and I think there's lots more rich material to come out of the census so there's a sort of but that's not quite the answer to your question it's just a way of getting Mm. these points in. To answer your question, I mean, neither the government nor the major opposition parties are are currently signalling that they've had much radical thought going on about the future of local government or city government or levelling up or any of the things that we're all interested in. Which is not to say that circumstances might not drive them to have to think more radically. I I just personally don't think that it is, as I have said earlier, the fact that local government is so good at managing resources, certainly compared with national government departments, so good at managing resources and downwards means that it is easy to imagine everything is fine. But I do think we'll see more section 114 notices in the coming year or years. And I think the, 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 the reality that you can't provide a country which will still hope to have a growing economy, you know a year or two from now, mm. where if you look at the autumn statement, it shows rather surprisingly to me two and a half percent trend growth suddenly returning. <laughs> um, so if that happened, so where people's personal income start to grow again after a long period of decline, or after a period of decline for many people and their personal life chances with their incomes start to improve, which they will at some point, you know, it won't always be like this, whether they'll want to, you know, the, the, the risk of, you know, to, to reuse, it's much reused, John Kenneth Galbraith's observation about private affluence and public squalor. There is a risk that if the basic services local government delivers are underfunded for a generation, which is what it would soon be, that people won't like that, hmm. and some way will have to be found to improve what places feel and look like. Town centres, city centres, public transit systems, you know, for rural areas, I mean, this is a centre for cities where, um, uh, broadcast, but you know, um, you'd have to be very hard of heart not to see rural areas having done dismally badly out of rural transport Indeed. cuts, you hmm. know. So, How long this can go on for, I think eventually that the public will think enough. And at that point, some form of reform, including some form of financial reform, reform will become unavoidable. Now, whether that be in two or three years, I don't know, but probably in the next 10. Mm, Interesting. Final, final thought, just just not partly
0: related to that, but but also just a a kind of slightly broader question. Do you think that... the concerns around the UK constitution, political representation, and within that, you know, the question of England and in some respects, you know, the question of institutions like the House of Lords. Does that play into local government and the role of it, not just in terms of service delivery and all of that kind of stuff, which is obviously very important, but as, you know, democratic entities in and of their own right, at the local level or at the you know uh, super local level is that an area that you think might actually engender some some change
1: i think it might i mean it's you make a really cool point i mean local government it's easy just to see see local government as local government you know Uh, truth is it's the building block of democracy they are the building blocks of democracy Uh, there weren't local activists and in many places, local activists are heavily involved with the council and or are councillors. There'd be no parliament. I mean, how would you select MPs? Mm. How would parliament work if it didn't have a fully formed local activist base, which in many cases is kept going in midweek by councillors and other activists and party managers mm. and so on at the local level? So there is no question that parliament and national government depends more than it sees itself on the local. I know, I know the relationship's not always great, and I don't mean the central local government relations. I mean, I mean the MP's councillors' relationship. Mm. Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's not so good, but it is a relationship. And I think as we move into a period where, well, there's going to be a general election in two years' time, we've got poll after poll after poll that shows that councillors are more popular and more popular in making decisions than ministers and that national government. I mean, you know, if national government had any um, parliament had any way of worrying about itself and thinking about the problems it's got, it would worry a lot. I mean, who speaks for parliament and government in trying to restore it, trust in, in it, given that liberal democracy relies on that trust, is something that, you know, we worry more about local government, which has higher levels of trust, mm. than national government. But Again, that's a subject for another discussion on another day. So. You know, my sort of and the House of Lords, it's in the House of Lords um reform has sort of popped into the news latterly, partly because as of now, you know, the Labour Party looks as if it's doing slightly better than it normally does in the opinion polls, and they have talked about reforming the House of Lords. Personally, I think it'd be more difficult to do than to say when they got there. But if there were ever to be a reform of the Lords, and it's not only a, it's not a one party issue. There are lots of people in the Lords who think the Lords needs to be changed. If stress, if it were to move onto any form of elected basis, the question of whether it would be just directly elected like the Commons, which I somehow find hard to mm. imagine that would be too competitive, or there was some sort of regional element in it that, that made it or subnational, you know, indirect Elections that are different than just constituencies. Um, I think that debate would then be had, and' the debate perhaps that needs to start now. So I think that if you look across the broader piece about the position of local government, city regional government as the you know the new, newish creature in this forest, the reform of institutions but particularly trust in democracy trust in liberal democracy is something everybody who's involved whether national one thing that everybody you know councillors city regional mayors and uh, officials uh, parliamentarians and government one thing they have in common we all have in common is a concern for the future of democracy mm. liberal democracy lots of nasty people out there in other countries who don't think it's such a good idea and are making big efforts to undermine it. And so there is a very powerful argument for those at the sub-national level to make to those at the national level that the whole system would be more trusted because decisions made locally are more trusted than those made nationally. So it's in liberal democracy's interest that there is more devolution, more power, more resource use, more tax raising at the local level. A
0: perfect way to finish my guest today has been Tony Travers. Tony, thanks for being part of City Talks.
1: Thanks, Andrew.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of City Talks brought to you by Centre for Cities. You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher by searching Centre for Cities. Please rate, review and subscribe if you like what you heard. You can also follow the centre on Twitter at Centre for Cities or like us on LinkedIn for the latest updates on what the centre is up to. If there are any comments on the episode or suggestions for topics we should cover in the future, we'd love to hear from you. Do tweet us or send an email to info at centreforcities.org. The music was from Palace Fires by Johnny Foreigner, used with permission and all rights are reserved.